Malik. Welcome back to the Bag Drop, my friend. Matt, what's going on, man? Thanks for having me. Oh, it's good to have you back. So, uh, you know, I think we need a good name for you if this is going to be a recurring theme of having you on the podcast. Maybe it's Professor PJ. Um, <laughs> that's the first one that came to mind. Do you have any good nicknames? Uh, a lot of my friends, a lot of my buddies call me Junior because I'm the second. So okay. uh, all their nicknames for my dad is Senior. So I'm naturally Junior. Uh, a lot of college friends call me Pete. Those are probably the two that, they call me the most. Uh, I don't know about Professor PJ. That's a little, uh, I don't know, that's a little <laughs> premature, I think. So. Professor Pete sounds good. I mean, you, t- you just teach us so much about the game, okay? I don't care about <laughs> yeah. uh, It's you're, you're a savant at the age of 23 with this. Oh, how about Encyclopedia? <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I don't know if... I don't know if uh, if that works either. Encyclopedia? <laughs> no, that's okay. We're just going to go with PJ Malik. Well, dude, it's great to have you back on the show. We're doing it again because people loved having uh, your rendition of Master's History, which you know enlightened myself and, and everyone else that probably gave it a listen. And now we want to do similar for the PGA Championship as it's uh, coming up next week. Before we get to that, um, we left you as you were uh, on your way down to Augusta. So, well, I mean, nothing big happened down there this year. I'm sure it was just a, a bore, a big old snooze for you. But t- tell us a little bit about your week, about your experience down there. Uh, you know, I mean, anytime you can spend eight days in Augusta, Georgia during Masters Week is pretty special. And uh, especially for me to be able to spend it with my dad and my brother, uh, my brother Nick. He's a senior at Marquette. He's actually about to graduate in a week, but uh, he was able to sneak down on Wednesday night and join my dad and I, and we hung out the rest of the week, and he was able to uh, sip a couple of azaleas down on Amen Corner behind 12T there and have a couple beers and kind of hang out while my dad and I were working, but uh, it was awesome. I mean, especially, you know, obviously the winter being T-dubs and watching, you know, everything that he's gone through and the last 10 plus years and having won a major since 2008 and haven't been able to win a master since 2005. I mean, you know, if you were able to put a bet down the day after the 2005 masters and say that, uh, Tiger won't win another masters until, you know, in 14 years until 2019. I mean, people would have looked at you like you had six different heads. Uh, you know, the way that I guess the whole, that whole back nine, on Sunday, just the way it played out and, you know, the traditional saying that the Masters doesn't start until the second nine on Sunday and watching Molinari and Finau whip it and raise Creek on 12. I mean, Molinari was my pick. Uh, I thought that he was going to close it out Saturday night. I, he just looked like the Terminator. He looked like nothing was phasing him. Uh, guy made two bogeys and 54 holes. I mean, he just looked unflappable and, uh, you know, I, that pressure going for your first green jacket, not understanding what it, you know, maybe what it means, what it entails and to win a Masters. And I think the uh, maybe just a little premature and kind of got away from there at the end. But, you know, I, I don't think the Augusta members could be any more happy with their winner. And, you know, it was a pretty cool scene there on the 18th hole on Sunday afternoon to watch Tiger hug his son, Charlie, and see his daughter, Sam, there. And it was, it was a pretty special moment to see his life come in full circle, really. 
where were you uh where were you stationed for work where, where did the pj tour radio have you uh, so I was actually working for ESPN that week. Uh, we were in the compound right behind. Um, there's a huge compound area right behind the par three course there at Augusta National. So I was actually, I was actually just a cart runner. So I was running back and forth. Guys like Scott Van Pelt, uh, Curtis Strange, Andy North, uh, the Bear from College Game Day, the statistician, um, Mike Greenberg from Mike and Mike. Uh, and now he does a show get up on ESPN. So guys like that, I was kind of just running around and making sure that they were getting to the right place on time and making sure that they had enough pimento cheese sandwiches, uh, before they went on air. And, uh, yeah, so that was, that was my job for the week. <laughs> Keep them fueled up with pimento cheese and egg salad and peach exactly. ice cream. That keeps everybody happy. Yeah. yeah. I actually, uh, I actually had 40 egg salad sandwiches that week. So, Oh my goodness! Yeah, we we kept it uh, kept a tally in the uh, in the green room there, and it was uh, it was pretty impressive. A couple guys, Scott Van Pelt had uh, his bet was fifty two, and so he wasn't too happy with me at the end of the week. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think your digestive system would be too happy with you at the end of the week. That's a lot of egg salad. No, well, you got to remember that I'm twenty three, you know, so I can I can still eat whatever I want for a couple more years. I think. Yeah, rub it, rub it in, buddy. That's great. <laughs> um, <laughs> awesome. I love how you brought up uh, Molinari, and I don't think we mentioned Brooks Kepka, but man, you know, obviously Tiger steals the show. He does what you know, old Tiger of old, and golf courses are a lot more crowded now because of it, I'm sure. But uh, you know, in most scenarios, Molinari or Brooks. Would, would hold on to win it. And, and in a lot of ways, it's not like they lost it. I mean, Tiger played uh, phenomenal golf down the stretch. Just like I, I felt like he was uh, a strategician just putting the ball on the right spots. Um, but, you know, for the last six, I think, hit it in Ray's Creek on 12. Like, guys didn't didn't really show up like we've seen, especially those two. You know, Molinari doing it at the British and uh, Kepka, who we're going to talk a lot about, I'm sure, for this upcoming one defending his title um those guys usually would hold on to win it and and they didn't you know that's was that something that kind of stood out to you yeah i think especially molinari to be honest with you because he you got to remember he went through it last year at the british he played with tiger in the final round of a major on sunday and uh he went toe-to-toe with him tiger took the lead briefly last year in the open championship on sunday and uh molinari was able to you know put his blinders on and and you know basically par Carnusi to death until 18 and made a sweet birdie there. But uh, so honestly, I mean, that's what, when my dad and I, my brother, we were talking about a Saturday night. I thought that he just draw off that experience. He didn't have any, uh, you know, playing with tiger pressure, I guess you could say, because he knows what it was like to do it. And um, Hey, I, you know, I, I honestly think it, you know, it's a different tournament. The masters is, it's a major, but it's even more special to a lot of these guys. And uh, I think the way that, you know, Molinar whipping it in the water on uh, 12 and then hitting it again on 15, he kind of got a bad break, uh, hit his punch shot down there too far, and then was underneath the tree. And obviously the ball kind of jumped out of that lie. But, uh, you know, what was surprising to me too was Brooks come down the stretch. I mean, he had 10 feet for birdie on 17 and 8 feet for birdie on 18 and, didn't really hit the hole on either putts. And, you know, those are things that 
you know, last couple of years, especially in the U.S. Open at Shinnecock last year, where he had those pressure putts to kind of keep his round going and keep the momentum on his side, and he just pour him in the heart like it was nothing. And, uh, you know, I guess maybe it's a little bit of the Tiger effect. Uh, you know, he's not used to, I guess, chasing down a guy like Tiger. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, too, it's it's just golf, and I think he, I think he's, he was probably kicking himself walking off the 18th green there. Yeah. What's your, so four of the last six guys ended up in Rays Creek. I think that's right. It's either three or four, but I know it's Poulter, Finau, Shoffley, maybe Molinari. Um, and Brooks. And did Brooks hit it in? Yeah, he did. He made five. So, so what's your take on that? Just, just like you said, the masters is, is just another heightened, the back nine of the masters is another heightened level of these nerves that just hit all these guys at the wrong time. I mean, the, the weird thing that I saw the rest of the day and like all golf geeks, I was watching masters coverage, you know, uh, from sunup because it was the early coverage. Um, I, I didn't see anybody hit it in the water. Like I didn't see, I didn't see any balls in the water until those last three groups. So what's your take on that? Yeah. I mean, the only guy, honestly, that I can remember hitting it, on race Creek on 12 on Sunday is Jordan Spieth. Cause he did it in 14. He did it in 16. Uh, he did it in, um, did it in 17. So, but I think, you know, I heard something interesting the other day, Rory McIlroy and uh, Carson Daly do a podcast now. And, uh, Carson Daly said that it was the, uh, it was the spirit of Earl Woods that held Tiger's ball, <laughs> helped Tiger's ball on the 12 green. And, made sure that everybody else was finding race Creek, which, you know, I, I I'm Catholic. I, I believe in God, but, uh, I don't know if I believe that Earl Woods, spirit was, was the reason why tiger won the masters this year. But, uh, you know, it's kind of an interesting, interesting thought for sure. We could, you're, you're trying to bait me. We could take this to this golf podcast to a very esoteric place right now, and I'm not going to do it, but, uh, I want to hear my cynical take. Well, what I think that there's some Wizard of Oz, maybe it's Fred Ridley, who's controlling the air density across Ray's Creek. So you get into Amen Corner, and they're they're pulling levers, Pete. They're pulling levers. Yeah, I I don't know about that, but I uh, I will say that I think that they've made a uh, definitely made an executive decision and tried to keep the greens and the fairways a little slower uh, after they got that rank because you know like we talked about that they can manipulate that course, whichever way they'd like to. And, uh, the fact systems, they can make it pretty dry and pretty firm pretty quickly after rains. And I think that they, you know, they wanted the guy in the red shirt and the black pants to be there on Sunday. And they felt like that might not happen if they made the golf course firmer on the weekend. And I mean, you got to look at the stats. The guy missed seven putts inside 10 feet in the first two rounds and didn't miss one uh on the weekend inside 10 feet so you know might be a little conspiracy theory there but you know you never know i mean they definitely got the winner they wanted if uh if after this pod drops uh and i have you know six guys in green jackets showing up at my uh, apartment door <laughs> I'll, I'll give you you'll, you'll be the first one that i call um oh, all right, so this is not a, a master's podcast you know it is it is may we are moving on to the pga championship uh let's talk about it beth page black here we are um what is what do our audience need to know about this event maybe we start with a little bit of the history of the pga championship if you don't mind yeah cool so actually so this will be the third major that beth page is hosting which is pretty cool uh for a state park golf course um 
it'll be the first PGA Championship that they will be holding. They held the U.S. Open in 2002 when Mr. Woods won his second Open there. And uh, in 2009, when kind of a random winner, Lucas Glover, was able to win by two shots in a rain-soaked U.S. Open. But, uh, yeah, so the PGA Championship, uh, some cool history. Just It began in 1916. Uh, the USGA formed in 1894. And, started hosting the U.S. Open, and PGA professionals kind of felt like they were being left out. And uh, so they decided to form their own tournament in 1916. And um, which is interesting is that we go from arguably the one major that has the richest master's tradition was uh, Richard's, sorry, richest amateur tradition, which is the master's tournament. Uh, It was obviously founded and started by, Robert Tyler Jones Jr., Bobby Jones, who was the greatest amateur in the history of golf. And uh, so now we enter the PGA Championship, which has no amateur history. Uh, obviously, it is excluded to amateurs. It's the only golf tournament in the world, any or only professional golf tournament in the world, that does not allow uh, amateurs. You know, you, any PGA Tour event, you can rock up there on a Monday qualifier and try to play as an amateur, but you can't do that at PGA. They, uh, they have 20 spots open for just local PGA club pros who have qualified for the uh, PGA club pro championship. And the, they take the top 20 players from that tournament and give them invites to the PGA championship, which is, you know, awesome and definitely a uh, fulfilling reward for those who dedicate their lives to the game and in a different way. And um, which mo- uh, probably a lot of people don't understand about the PGA or don't realize is that it was actually started as a match play tournament uh, from 1916 until 1957. It was all match play. Uh, it was seven rounds of just rigorous match play golf. Um, the last, the last uh, victor in the PGA championship in the match play section was a guy by, by the name of Lionel Abair who won a Miami Valley golf club in, uh, in Dayton, Ohio. And his brother, uh, Jay Hebert, won the PGA in 1960 at Firestone up in Akron in your neck of the woods. So kind of a cool brother tandem there. I actually know uh, Lionel's nephew and Jay's son, John Paul Hebert, pretty well. He's the assistant golf coach at the University of Texas. Uh, he, he and my dad worked together for a while when, he tried to play professional golf, so I've known John Paul for a long time. But uh, yeah, so they made what a, a switch. What a squeeze to of the reference play. of both Dayton and Akron, two <laughs> places uh, we're both very fond of in the same sentence related to that. That's well done. Good, good, good journalism there. That's impressive. Nice. <laughs> but uh, yeah, kind of rambling on a little bit here. But uh, so they made the switch in 1958. Um, here, let me back uh, up. To, tar- let me back up to the the amateur thing because I thought you that's a really cool uh, parallel that you drew there from you know the Masters celebrating amateur golf and so the PGA Championship has never allowed amateurs in their championship. No, yeah, never in the history of the tournament. It's always been always been uh, professionals only. And, I, and I'm sure most some people might look at that as maybe a negative, but you know, like you said, the, the richest history of it is is the club professionals being able to qualify and play in this championship. Yeah, definitely. I mean, club professionals, in my opinion, are probably the the unsung heroes in uh, in golf. I mean, they they dedicate their lives to this game for you know not a great sum of money, and uh, you know they have to deal with a lot of 
you know, stuff, I'm sure, every day of their lives and just membership and golf course and just I can't imagine the things that they go through every day. But uh, it's a job that I would definitely not want and definitely uh, handle pretty poorly. And that's what makes PGA professionals uh, so unique and, and so special to our game. Yeah, I, I, I'm right on that camp as well. I mean, I get to work with a lot of them and talk to to even more uh, in the industry and in the business. And, um, you know, I, I agree. I think it's one of the most underappreciated roles uh, that really directly affects our game and the ones that do it well and, uh, you know, work with passion and work with uh, really helping people enjoy the game of golf. Um, they they they're giving back tenfold, you know, and so it's like, yeah, they deserve their own championship. And I, and I like to hear that the history of it kind of goes far back uh, to focus on that. You know, when I, when I think of club pros too, like people don't realize some of the best, like Byron Nelson, Ben Hogan, those guys were club pros because they weren't making any money playing. I mean, they were, but not the money that, you know, of today or post Tiger or post Arnold and, and they needed to support their families. So a lot of them worked as club professionals, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the last uh, club pro to win a major championship was Butcharman's dad that we talked about during the Masters podcast, Claude Harmon, who won the 48 Masters. And, um, you know, he was a club pro at Wingfoot and Seminole. That was he didn't think that he was good enough to play the PGA Tour to play professional golf and make a living. So he he had a day job. I mean, a lot of those guys, that's that's what you did back then. And a lot of them, uh, you know, Claude, Jay and Lionel Hebert. Um, Dave Marr Jr., Jackie Burke Jr., all those guys, a lot of those guys worked up in New York, worked in the Met section. And, um, you know, Jackie Burke Jr. was one of Claude Harmon's guys. He worked at, up at Wingfoot. Uh, Dave Marr Jr. was one of Claude Harmon's guys. A lot of those players kind of revolved around Claude and kind of saw him as a father figure, and he took him under their wing and, and was able to kind of help them get assistant jobs wherever he was, wherever he that where was, or sorry, wherever he was working. And um, you know, it's it's a cool story about how those guys they just wanted to play golf. They weren't in it for the money. Uh, they weren't in it for the lifestyle. They just wanted to they wanted to play golf at the highest level, and they would do anything to make ends meet. At the end of the day, yeah, yeah, it's cool that that uh, you know. I hope the PGA promotes all that because that's. Uh, those those roots are important. Now, match play. Here's here's one thing I'm curious about. You said it was seven rounds. Uh, did they have stroke play qualifying? Was that part of the seven rounds, or or did you did they like seed people prior? How, how did it work back then? Yeah, they had two days of uh, stroke play, and then they went straight to uh, match play. So it was pretty. That was one of the reasons why they switched to stroke play was because it was just so grueling of a of a test that uh, the players were complaining about it, and eventually they uh, in 1957 the tournament lost money, lost sponsorship money. People weren't attending the tournament, so they felt like the best way to regain a profit was to switch it to a 72 hole stroke play event. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, money. You know, runs. <laughs> runs the world and that's what what, what it's going to happen it's just unfortunate because like you know i i um i i think i was talking to a buddy on the golf course today actually and he was he was saying like you know i don't know pga okay uh, like oh they moved it to may great you know but he's not he's not into it like you will be for the u.s open or like he was for the masters or even the british you know people kind of they, they have their roots i it's almost like, like how could they make this event 
different? Well, that's one way is it would be the only major that's match play. I mean, could you imagine if Tiger is playing in head-to-head against anybody on Sunday of, you know, the PGA Championship winning a match play title? That would be unreal. Yeah, it'd be unbelievable. I think, I mean, I think the move to May, I think it's great for golf. I think they definitely did a uh, great, made a great decision there. Um, You know, they cited it because they can, It'll be cooler weather in May, so they can go to places that they haven't gone to before. They can kind of hit the West Coast spots that they never really were able to because of the heat in August. And uh, so, as for reference, like next year they're going to TPC Harding Park, which is in San Francisco. Um, they're gonna uh, they're gonna play in about ten years. They're going to go to Olympic Club, so they're gonna go to a lot of golf courses, a lot of you know, traditional U.S. Open sites that will now be PGA Championship sites. And um, I think, you know, I think it's perfect for golf and the tour. They get five big tournaments uh, each month from from March until July, uh, ending with the British Open. And uh, I think it, you know, I think it has a little more interest. I think it's going to be, I feel like the PGA might have lost their identity there for a little bit, kind of with the different slogans and, you know, Masters, you think a tradition, only major that uh, is played at the same course every year. U.S. Open, it's our national championship. Fast greens, thick rough, pars your friend. Whoever shoots around even is going to win the tournament. You're always going to see a train wreck somewhere. Um, that's kind of you know why we tune into the U.S. Open, British Open, oldest championship in golf, home of golf. Uh, you know, and the coolest thing about the British is that you get to tune in at five o'clock in the morning and, you know, you can watch live golf until 11 and, here in the States and then you can go out and, and play your own game. And, um, you know, you get to watch all the elements, all the players try to figure out the golf course. It's all strategy based. Uh, and then you go to the PGA and it was kind of like, you know, it kind of had the feeling of just another PGA Tour event. And I think this Gives it a little more identity. Uh, I think they're going to go to a lot of cool venues in these next couple of years that they weren't really able to uh, the last few years just because of the heat in August. And I can't wait. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, especially at Beth Page, such a cool site. Um, you know, the New York fans will be rowdy, and it'll be a uh, it'll be a fun time. The move to well, we already talked about the move to May. I agree with you. I mean, it's great for the game. It fits in perfectly to the schedule. It just makes so much sense to me. Um, the uh, switch to I, I think it should be match play. I think that'd be really cool. But dollars will dictate that. Uh, some prime time golf on the West Coast match play, though. I think that'd be really cool. Um, but uh, but on to on to Beth Page. So let's talk about the course a little bit. Let's talk about the. Uh, uh, the, the you know the year um i mean so beth page is i looked up a couple of the stats just on where it sits on most of the lists it's always top 10 on america's toughest golf courses um it's uh top 10 on america's public golf courses on, on most major lists uh, i think it was like number 26 overall maybe by golf digest or, or somewhere in that in that realm um have you ever played it i mean it's a good golf course no, I've actually never played it. Uh, my dad's my dad used to live in New York when he first graduated from college, so he's played it a ton. Uh, he loves it. I mean, it's such a cool place because you know regular Joes can play it. I mean, and all of a sudden they had a U.S. Open there, and that's what I think was such a cool story about it was that you get these you know, New York policemen and firemen and you know garbage men who get to play 
a U.S. Open golf course every day. And, uh, you know, there's a great story about how players, when they were entering the 2002 U.S. Open there, there'd be uh, security guys who would come up to them and tell them how to play specific holes because this is where they play every Wednesday night or every Saturday morning. This is where their their gang some plays. And, uh, you know, guys were shocked because usually they have, you know, business tycoons and, you know, trust fund kids who come up and try to talk to them about the golf course. Where here it's, you know, it's an every Joe's golf course. And uh, I think that's what's so special about Beth Page. I think that's what's so cool about uh, the New York fans is that, you know, people think of them as rowdy and they get riled up easily, which they definitely do. But at the same time, they're educated about the golf course. They they play it every day. And uh, the people that you're going to be seeing in the crowds next week play that golf course five times a week. So that's going to be it's going to be very unique and something that you don't really see a lot when you tune into a PGA Tour event. I, so I, I have not played it. I've played the red course there, which is actually a pretty, pretty darn good golf course as well. Um, I think most of them are Tillinghast uh, on the in the state park, but uh, the I got buddies that are living you know live in Queens. They live in Manhattan and they 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 love it and they'll do the whole 3 a.m. You know they're all trunk slammers. None of them are at private clubs, but they they love going out there. And I think they only pay like 65 or 75 bucks, so they've never really jacked up the rates either. I mean to have a major championship golf course that accessible that uh, um, you know, affordable, uh, that's, that is really cool. And I know that story you're talking about. So did you ever read open by John Feinstein? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, John Feinstein is one of my favorite writers of all time. So I've read almost every, every one of his books. Yeah. It's, it's a, I don't think I made it the whole way through, but it still is really good. And if anyone wants kind of that backstage access type, uh, type read about, you know, bring in, I think it, it focuses a lot about on Faye, bring in the, um, uh, was it David Faye brings yeah. the, the U S open there in 2002, the first one on a truly public golf course. And he, he really just gives you the behind the scenes storyline to, uh, to how that all went down. And, and at the heart of it is Beth Page Black. You know, that's the main character in the book, um, which is really cool. So I remember that security guard story that he told in there, uh, giving Tiger tips on, you know, missing on the right side of the green and things like that. Um, but the book, I think the book also goes into like how the USGA makes pairings and, you know, how they run their qualifiers and setting up the golf course and all, all that fascinating detail. It's a really good read. If anyone's actually interested in it, they should go check it out. No doubt. Yeah, it's Feinstein is able to uh, he has a way with words and sports that I don't think any author really does. He has an ability to to uh, gain access and in, in multiple sports. And he definitely takes you behind the scenes with the USGA and and Beth Page itself. And it's uh, it's really interesting. Yep. So the the word on the street is that the course. So, so you know, we're sitting here in the Midwest, both you and I and. We've been getting pelted pretty good with some spring rain showers. But, I, I mean, New York's really gotten it the last couple of weeks, and I think there's more in the forecast coming up. But uh, but I knew a guy that actually played a couple of weeks or a couple of days ago um, in, in one of the, the corporate outings they had before shutting down the golf course. And uh, it, he said it was in phenomenal condition, even though there has been so much rain. I guess the places Reese Jones did some work on it um, recently and improved some drainage, I think, and some other – you know, m- more challenging as Reese does trying to defend the golf course, uh, best they can. But, 
Um, he said it's just in, in perfect condition, which I, which is crazy to me, you know, cause I just punt, you know, played today and I put it on punched greens as, as we will in the early spring, uh, months. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, I hear good things. What do you hear about the course? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, it's long it's 7,400 yards, uh, especially if it's going to be wet, but I think that's, you know, that's what we saw in the last two times that the U S open was there. Uh, or when the U.S. Open was there in 2002, they had rain-soaked days. Tiger had to get his uh, final round in, basically in the pitch dark. Uh, and then the same thing that went on in 2009, where they actually had a Monday finish, if a lot of people don't remember, that they finished at about 3 o'clock in Monday afternoon. Um, so, you know, I obviously you can get a ton of rain up in New York at this time of year, too. Uh, it's springtime in May, so the course is going to play a lot longer, I think, which you know, coincides with the bombers. You got, you know, your normal guys like Rory, Dustin Johnson, Brooks Kepka. Uh, you know, I'm sure that those three will be the favorites going into the next week's tournament. And, you know, we'll see. It's it's gonna be a fun time and I can't wait. It's gonna be exciting. Yes, sir. The I remember that that Monday finish of the US Open at Beth Page uh, was that was Lucas Glover, right? Two thousand and nine. I was sitting in my shitty cubicle for my sales job, listening to it on the radio, uh, or radio, whatever, streaming it. Um, and uh, and I remember that fellow Link soldier, Lucas Glover. What a what a cat that guy is. That'd be that'd be fun if he gets hot. I'd like to see him in the mix. Yeah, this is his last. Or sorry, he. Uh, I was thinking something different, but he. I don't. He won't be in the field this. Uh, next week, I don't think uh, his, you know, his his uh, major exemption is uh, five years, and then he has a ten year exemption in the U.S. Open. So this will be his last year in the U.S. Open unless he uh, can qualify next year for it. His, his wife is not going to be happy about that. I hope he already. I did not know he wasn't in the field. I hope he already shared that news with her. Um, cool. So, so let's go to some storylines for this this week. What what do you uh, what are you paying attention to? Uh, you know, obviously Tiger, uh, you know, this golf course that he's won on before, uh, won on in wet conditions. So it'll be interesting, but also at the same time, I mean, he's now 43 years old and he has a fused back. So we'll see how his condition can hold up in 72 holes. But, uh, you know, I, I think he'll, I mean, people are saying that he's the favorite to win and, you know, I guess, I guess he is, but. I feel like the Masters is a different tournament just because he knows that golf course so well. And even though he's won here before, I I feel like he'll play well. I don't think he's gonna. I don't think he's gonna win. But hey, I mean, I said that last month when we were doing this, and I was dead wrong. So we'll see how he plays. I think he'll. I think he'll top twenty. Uh, I don't think he'll do anything crazy. Uh, another storyline that I am really intrigued about is the Jordan Spieth storyline that I know I think you want to get into a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's get to that here in just a just a second. On Tiger, um, I know he's. He, did you see he brought privacy? His twenty million dollar yacht in into town. Yes, I did see that. I saw that a couple of days ago. I mean, I, I have you ever been on privacy? <laughs> no, I have not been on privacy. Oh, I'm I'm just curious what you know. What a name for a twenty million dollar boat. I I feel like anything that is in the teens of millions shouldn't really be named privacy. Like you're asking for attention, but anyways, um, the uh, yeah, Vegas has him at seven to one, and that crazy. I think that's like maddening, but hey, that's what the public wants. 
no doubt. I mean, that's, you know, he's the needle. He's been it for since he turned pro in 1996. So people want to see him play well. And hey, you know, it's it's good for golf. It's it's what golf needs. And, you know, it'll, it'll be fun. It'll be crazy and fun to see if he's if he's in the mix uh, next week on Sunday. That would be that would be pretty unbelievable. So, Spieth, like you, you brought this up to me when we were chatting last week, and I was just like, "Man, that's interesting." So, tell tell me why you're you're looking forward to watching Spieth this week. Well, for starters, I mean, he can he can create history uh, next week, which a lot of people kind of forget. You know, it's such a big deal when we go to the Masters and we talk about Rory trying to finish the career Grand Slam and win the Masters in the final leg uh, of the four majors um, for him in his career. And Spieth can do the same thing at the age of 25, which is unbelievable. But he can, if he wins next week, that'll be his fourth uh, fourth career major, and also he will complete the career Grand Slam. Uh, there's only two other guys who have n- never won the PGA, but have won the other three legs of the Grand Slam, and pretty impressive company in Arnold Palmer and Tom Watson. And there's. 13 players total that have won three legs of the Grand Slam but didn't win the particular one that they needed. So guys like Lee Gervino, who never won the Masters, Phil Mickelson, who's a six-time runner-up in the U.S. Open, always the bridesmaid but never the bride. Um, you got guys like Raymond Floyd, who have never won the British Open. Um, you know, And then maybe older guys like Walter Hagen, who won the three majors that were there during his time, during his playing career, but then they added the Masters, so he was kind of screwed out of winning or vying for a career Grand Slam. But, um, you know, I think the storylines with Jordan is is just interesting. I think, you know, he's obviously everybody knows that he's been in a huge slump really since uh, really since after he shot that 64 in the final round on Sunday last year at the Masters. Um, after that, we – Really haven't heard much of him. Uh, you know, he played well. He played himself into the final group of the British Open last year, Carnoustie, but he was paired with Xander Shoffley, but just wasn't able to really get anything going. And, um, you know, kind of after that, really, he has kind of fallen off a little bit. He, this time last year, he was ranked third in the world. Uh, this morning when the world rankings come out, he was ranked third. He is currently ranked 39th. He's dropped 36 spots in exactly one year worth of time, which is uh, kind of staggering, kind of uh, concerning, especially for a guy with his talent. Um, you know, he's if you look back in Jordan Spieth's career since he was 12 years old, since he started playing competitive junior golf, he's never had a slump. Um, you know, he was dominant in the AJGA ranks. He's the only guy, only player in history to ever win more than one U.S. junior uh, other than Tiger Woods, who uh, Jordan won two. He won in 2009 and 2011. And, you know, he dominated uh, his year and a half at Texas, All-American there. They won the team national championship. And then, you know, he turns pro at the age of 19, wins the John Deere Classic at the age of 19, becomes the first teenager to win a tour event since uh, since 1913. Um you know, wins the Masters at 21, wins the U.S. Open at 21, wins the British Open at 23. I mean, he's he's doing these things that people people thought that 
he was going to be a solid tour player. I think a lot of people thought that he would be a guy that would obviously be around for a long time and win a couple majors and, you know, win 20 times, but they didn't think he was going to win three majors by the time he was 24 years old. And, uh, you know, he was able to make these record setting scores and numbers that, you know, we haven't really seen since Tiger Woods. I mean, he tied Tiger's course record or course scoring record at Augusta in 2015. And, you know, he's doing these things that people are thinking, oh my God, this is going to be the guy. He's going to win 10 majors. He's going to win 50 times. And I think now he's kind of starting to go through that process where, hey, golf's hard. And golf doesn't care who you are. doesn't care if you're Tiger Woods or doesn't care if you're PJ Malik. You're going to, you have to go through hard times. And, you know, Tiger went through it. Jack Nicholas, after he won two majors in 1980 and before he won his 18th and final major in 1986, he went through a huge six year drought there. Uh, he talks about how Phil Rogers, an old tour pro who had an unbelievable short game, uh, revamped his entire short game. He's Jack said that he got to the point where he would aim for bunkers to miss it in because he legitimately could not chip a golf ball. And uh, Phil Rogers, they started working together in the mid eighties. And then obviously Jack won his final major in 1986 and kind of revamped his game there a little bit and had a resurgence there in his mid forties. But that being said, I mean, everybody, the greatest players in the game go through it. Uh, good amateur players go through it. Um, you know, it, it's something kind of like a, you know, just the way of the road and um, speed's going through it right now. It's going to be interesting to, it's interesting to see how he gets out of it. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to see where his game's at, to be honest with you. He's taking a break here. Uh, he played the week after the Masters. He played at Harbor Town, finished tied for 59th. And then uh, he's playing this week at, uh, in Dallas at the AT&T Byron Nelson. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know where his game's at right now. I don't know where his head's at. Um, he keeps saying he's two weeks away. He's two weeks away. He's been saying that for a year now. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting, interesting to see if, if he really is two weeks away or if he's just saying that because he's kind of in denial. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I find it fascinating. And it, he, really, it's easy to root for the guy. Um, you know, one, he's so good with the press, and he always answers questions that seemed to be a authentic and genuine and, and, uh, he's just a class act. But I think, you know, this slump he's in, um, he, he seems to be owning it and, uh, just really obviously a very confident guy. But, you know, when you see him out there on the golf course, I mean, it, it kind of looks a lot like the rest of us, right. Where he's like really just talking a ton with Greller and, uh, you know, showing his disapproval of, of certain iron shots. And uh, obviously the putter has just kind of disappeared on him. He does some funky stuff like looking at the hole. And I just think he's – it's so great to see a guy that's so good uh, have those very dr- drastic imperfections. Um, and he owns it. You know, the chicken wing of his – kind of holds off the club face through impact and, you know, stuff like that. He's, it's, it's not – he gets it done his own way. Um, but he owns it and, and he, he voices it and you know, when he's off and, uh, I just think it's really cool. I think it's, it's, it's refreshing. It's why, you know, I think he's got so many fans out there and why people would love to see him complete the grand slam this, this week. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's definitely an interesting storyline. I, he's obviously, like you said, he's done it his own way. Um, 
definitely a little unorthodox. I mean, everything from his golf swing, like you talked about, to his putting left hand low. He looks at the hole inside three feet. Um, you know, he's not afraid to try different things. I think he's gotten a little caught up in trying to go after uh, extra yardage and trying to hit it a little farther. Um, if you look at his golf swing and when he first came out on tour, uh, he was very upright, played from almost across the line position, and now he's very laid off. His left arm is completely across his chest, where in 2013, 2014, 2015, when he was arguably, arguably playing his best golf, his left arm was right up into his uh, into his chin. So, you know, he's hit some, he's hit some uh, shots that are kind of off the map, but also, you then you go to Augusta and he gets he gets raked over the coals this year after going out and shooting seventy five on Thursday afternoon, and uh, he ends up you know he ends up shooting eight under the next three days. He finished tied for twenty first. Um, he he played some really solid golf, and I think and he that's almost those weeks for those guys are. Re- almost more important than winning because then they feel like, okay, I got off to a terrible start on Thursday. I was able to settle down. I played solid golf the next three days. It looked like I wasn't even going to make the cut after the first round. Now I got three more rounds of competitive golf under my belt and the things that he was trying to work on and maybe instill in his game with Cameron McCormick, they, they started to work. He might've found something in his swing that clicked and, and he was able to produce results. And I, I feel like that was something you know, personally for me, I feel like that would have been a huge step forward, and I'm sure for him, it, it was probably the same thing. You know, it's sad. We've we've talked about a guy that, let's face it, he's probably just not going to make the cut for 12 minutes here, and and there's a guy out there that we haven't even mentioned yet. We've been talking about the PGA Championship for 30 minutes. We haven't even said his name. The defending champ. The defending champ, Brooks Brooks. Uh, chip on my shoulder, Kepka, just getting no love, and, and we're we're just as bad as big, you know, big media, big golf channel. We're just we're not we're not respecting past champions where respect is due. So what's what's the deal? Why not? Why not Brooks? I, I honestly I don't know because uh, I I like Brooks. I admire his game. I admire the tenacity and and I admire uh, I admire the way that he puts a chip on his shoulder. He gets pissed off at people. He gets upset that you're not mentioning his name. I mean, I, the, one of the coolest stories I think that I've heard about him was last year at Shinnecock. He shoots 75 in the first round. He's watching golf channel in his hotel room and they flash a notable scoreboard and his name as the defending U S open champion at the current U S open, his name is not on the notables list. And that really, really pissed him off and was like how is my name not on the notables list and you know what i'm just gonna go out i'm just gonna put it at the top of the leaderboard because that's the only way they're gonna show it and at the end of the you know at the end of the week on sunday afternoon he was hugging curtis strange walking off the 18th green because he he just defended his u.s open title like curtis did in 1988 and 1989 and uh you know and then two goes down to St. Louis and he wins the PGA and uh, you know, it's incredible. It's, I don't know. I, it's weird that we don't talk about him. It really is. I don't know what it is. Uh, maybe it's just cause he's not the media personality. I guess that some of these guys like Justin Thomas, and Ricky Fowler, uh, Jordan, obviously guys like that, 
um, that are, you know, but, you know, his, his stats, his game speak for itself. I mean, he, that guy just doesn't get, he's just unflappable. He doesn't get phased by a lot of things out there. He, he's pretty stoic and he kind of takes it all in stride and, uh, you know, look at the masters this year. I mean, I feel like if you give that guy an incentive, he's going to go out and prove you wrong. Um, and I think, I think what we have to watch out for too is that Brandel Chambly kind of threw the gauntlet down, you know, the week of the Masters about how Brooks lost all this weight, which I don't know. I mean, to me, it looks the same, but who knows? Apparently, he lost weight, and Brandel thought that was, you know, the worst thing that he could ever do in his golf career, and that you'll never hear Brooks Kepka again. And the guy finished his second that week at the Masters, but uh, and has the, you know, the 18 hole lead, the first round lead on uh, Thursday night, but, you know, and now going into the PGA, Brandle decides to say that the only two guys that can rival Tiger Woods are Rory McIlroy and Dustin Johnson, and Brand- and uh, Brooks decides to tweet out a picture of Brandle Chambly with a clown's nose on. So, you know, that I think <laughs> it's safe to say that Brandle is, uh, is on Brooks's hate list, if you will. He's kind of uh, you know, and Billy Madison, if we have any Adam Sandler fans out there, the uh, the crazy guy who you know puts the lipstick on and has his kill list. I think I think Brandle's on that list for uh, for Brooks, but you know that means that Brooks will probably go out and win you know the next three majors and put everybody else to shame. To be honest with you, for sure. Yeah, I saw that on Twitter. That was too good that he would take the time <laughs> to do that and. Uh, and it fuels him. You can tell. I mean, he's just a competitor um, that that enjoys flying under the radar a little bit, probably because it just gives him so much more motivation to do it. And uh, I think we'll see him. He's Vegas has him at fifteen to one. I think his buddy DJ is eight to one. So it's uh, it's just always fascinating, man. I mean, especially because he was like you said, runner up at Augusta, and we're not even talking about that. So that maybe takes us to um, picks. For the week, and talking about what we, what our expectations are. So I'm thinking, like last time we did our stallions and our dark horses. You know who our who our uh, front runners are and and who some dark horse picks are. Um, I'm thinking let's let's get three out of each of us. One from you know the top list, all the big names. One kind of mid tier guy, and then and then let's kind of shoot uh, for a dark horse. How's that sound? All right, sounds good. Yeah, you want to start? I will start, sure. Um, so top of the list, I'm going with Brooks. I'm going with the defending. He's going to defend his title. Um, Brooks Kepka in in the loud arena of New York City is is going to have that stoicism and just uh, just not be phased and get the job done. So I'm, I'm going to pick Brooks as my first pick. Um, do you you want to want to go back and forth? You want to start with your top your stand? Sure. Well, you you just took my pick, so I'm not going to take him anymore. But uh, I think. I think Patrick Reed's going to win. <laughs> oh, he just took my next one. That was my mid-tier guy. He's, uh, you know, he's not getting the love, I feel like. Um, you know, he's been struggling a little bit with his game, but he's starting to work with David Ledbetter and uh, started to try to shorten his golf swing a little bit. And I, th- I feel like he, he won there in 2016 when it was the uh, when it was the Barclays Championship during the Fast Cup Series. And, um, you know, I, I feel like he, you know, he knows the golf course. Obviously, he's won there before. 
He's a good ball striker, good iron player, um, great short game, great putter. I feel like he's he's going to feed off that New York energy. He he's going to like kind of being the underdog. He's going to you, know, you kind of saw it last year in the final round of the U.S. Open in Shinnecock. People that New York crowd likes Patrick Reed. They like the chip on his shoulder. They like how he's kind of got an edge. They they kind of uh, resonate with that, and uh, they were they were definitely behind him when. He just caught fire on the front nine and was making birdies left and right. And um, so I think that's going to happen to Beth Page. And I think it's a good setup for him. Um, and I, I look to a uh, Patrick Reed holding the Wanamaker Trophy next Sunday. Well, you took my next one. I, I mean, Vegas still has him at 40 to 1. So I, I think uh, I would put him in the mid tier uh, bucket there mm-hmm. in the four or five lane for the horsies. But. Uh, <laughs> Did you got another mid-tier guy that you that you like, or do, should we just jump to our dark horses? Uh, another mid-tier, I think. Uh, I kind of like Ricky Fowler. To be honest with you, he qualified there for the U.S. Open in two thousand nine um, as an amateur when he was still at Oklahoma State. Uh, so he's you know he's played the golf course under major champ- championship conditions. Um, I think that you know I think Ricky. I, don't, I was always at the beginning. I was always a guy who. Felt like he would never win a major. Um, I always kind of thought that he was all flash and no substance, to be honest with you. But uh, I think he's coming into his own. You know, he, he's in his 30s now. I feel like he's kind of settling down a little bit. He, he doesn't like the whole image is everything. Um, he's kind of gotten tagged as maybe a little Andre Agassi in him. But uh, I feel like he's due to break out. And, and I think, you know, what there's not a better way for him to do it than – and with PGA in, in New York next week. All right. Uh, dark horses. I'll, I'll, I'll go. Okay. I kind of got two. I kind of got two. But they're both bombers. I'm thinking someone who just absolutely annihilates a golf ball will have some type of shot. I mean, 7,400. I know it's it's still an approach golf course from the sounds of it. But um, I like someone who can, can move it out there. And so I'm, I'm going to say uh, Lukey List. Okay. Way down, way down. Trying to my, my goal on these is to always have a darker horse than yours. So <laughs> let's see what you come up with. But I'm going to say, you know, Lukey List, even though he, he was in contention at Wells Fargo and fired a smooth 77 or whatever on Sunday. Um, but I'm still I'm going to still go with the guy. I I would love to see Kierdeck F. Barnrett win a major. I think that would be unbelievable. Uh the he's guy in the is. <laughs> no, he's in the field. Yeah, he played in the Masters. Okay. Uh, he, he'll. It'll be interesting. It, he, he's a he's a character for sure. He's kind of the Asian John Daly. He's, but he's got a great game. I mean, he he's good at every aspect of the game. He's got great touch around the greens. He's he kills the golf ball. He's solid iron player. Um, he, he's walking storming down the fairways with a vape. Uh, you know, he's just a, he's a character. I think it'd be. I think it'd be awesome if he was able to, to yeah. win next week i think it'd be pretty cool for golf my my uh fantasy team is is uh it's it's decent but it's 10 guys that i basically just want to root for i didn't go with any um criteria around like how are they playing like I, it's it's just loaded with people that i enjoy watching and and you know checking their scores during the weekends and such so uh Kiradesh is in that camp and uh i would love that as well that'd be really cool no doubt. Yeah, it'd be it'd be it'd be interesting to see if he had, if he was able to pull that off. My my other dark horse is a East Coast guy who played there in college 
and uh, I was actually in a tournament with them back in the day uh, on the red course there, and that's Keegan Bradley. Okay. Yeah, I could. Uh, you know, I don't. Who knows? I mean, anybody we've okay. seen in the past that, especially with the PGA. I mean, guys like Sean McKeel, Keegan, obviously in 2011. Um, you know, you get kind of random guys who win this tournament, and uh, you know, Keegan. It'd be pretty crazy if he. I think he'd be a little bit of a random guy to win it twice. That'd be uh, that'd be pretty pretty impressive. Oh yeah. It would be super random, and, and I have to, I have to take anxiety meds after watching him. You know, a warm warm up for hitting a golf shot. He's like the most fidgety player out there, so it's it's rough. But he he had some form of late, or at least ended last year pretty darn well. And I know he's hitting a lot better, but who knows? You never know. Yeah, he won the BMW cha- championship last year in Chicago, and uh, you know, so he's playing well. And, or playing well at the end of last year. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see what he does and see what happens. So, well, there's our picks. I think that's great, man. Anything else for the PGA Championship before we sign off? No, I think it'll be, you know, I, I look forward to watching. It'll be a fun week. Um, you know, I it's it's going to be fun to uh, – I'll actually be down in North Carolina. Um, I'll be covering the – working for Fox Sports – uh, during the U.S. Senior Women's Open down at Pine Needles, uh, just kind of right kind of in Pinehurst. So uh, it'll be fun to watch in the lodge there and uh, and be at a uh, major championship site while watching a, another major. So I'm excited to, to see what happens next week. Pine Needles is awesome, too. That place is uh, such a great walk. I mean, the, the women it's just seem to be getting the best venues for – uh, the opens and even, even their uh, tour schedules. I, I love seeing these classic places getting more love on the women's tour. That's really cool to see. Yeah, it's great. I mean, especially, you know, I we didn't talk about it and we actually didn't talk about it at the lead up to the Masters, but uh, the Augusta National Women's Amateur, I, I don't know if you watched any of it, but it was unbelievable. I mean, it was great golf. They, they hit a grand slam with it. Um, it was awesome theater, um, two, two of the best women's amateurs to go at it and uh i mean for cups to shoot 67 to eagle 13 to hit the shot that she hit on 15 i mean they couldn't have had better theater for it um it was it was awesome and you know to see these great things happening to women's golf it's uh long overdue and it's exciting to see where their game is going to be headed into the future it's going to be really cool i think for them that was one of the coolest uh, televised things I've, I've seen in a while. Um, uh, just seeing the looks on their faces and you know how nervous they are, you know, representing, you know, women's golf and, and being the age that they are playing that golf course. I actually, I was at a uh, uh, friend's going away party um, that Saturday night and then I, I come home and um, that was the, the replay was on and I had no idea who went one or anything. I wasn't checking my phone. So, uh, I'm not, I'm not afraid to say it. I had like tears welling up in my eyes when they, those two girls were battling it out, coming down the stretch and just how happy they were for each other. I, I thought it was one of the most beautiful things I've seen in sports. It was awesome. Yeah, it was. I mean, you could tell that they're friends, they're competitors and rivals, but at the end of the day, they're friends. And, uh, I think they understood what it meant to women's golf, women's amateur golf, uh, girls, junior golf. I think it's, it's a huge step forward. Um, it's going to be really cool to see that event progress in the next, 
you know, in the future and the next year's coming. And it's just going to be even bigger and bigger every year and to play, you know, on the Saturday, the week before the masters and on the greatest golf course in the world. It's, it's a pretty special honor for those girls. And it's, it's unbelievable. It's going to be really, really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, next year uh, on our preview, we'll make sure to include, you know, the women's amateur as part of that, um, as part of that prep. And uh, for this week, thank you for giving us our PGA prep. Um, it's always fun, man. I, w- can we have you back for the U.S. Open? Yeah, if I'm allowed to. Uh, you know, if if the viewership hasn't gone down even more since uh, the Masters, then I guess you know, I guess we can do it. So we'll check. We'll check the ratings. <laughs> I haven't seen a bump in the. Uh, we haven't seen the PJ bump just yet, but uh, maybe the, maybe because we weren't using your nickname yet. You know, Encyclopedia yeah. P- Peter Dia. No, that's not it. Uh, Junior, thanks, brother. This is awesome. We'll talk to you soon. No problem, Matt. Yeah, talk to you soon. Take care.